In the myriadic year of our lord, the ten-thousandth year of the king undying, the kindly prince of death, we depart from the disc and instead... We're doing bones, motherfucker! So cook up some soup in obedience to the emperor, put on your ugliest sunglasses, and strap on your longsword, and let's turn in for a special, complete... Necography? Thanography? Episode. Let's talk about Gideon and Harrow the Ninth. This is not a Terry Pratchett book. We are discussing Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth by Tamsin Weir, whose name I really hope I'm pronouncing correctly. And uh, so if bones and space necromancer lesbians aren't your thing, and just then catch up so with us. so much body horror. <laughs> yeah, then catch up with us in the next episode. Uh, but uh, here we are talking about our one of our favorite books that isn't Terry Pratchett, and, at least yeah. currently. There's going to be a lot of spoilers <laughs> and a lot of confusion too. Hey, it's a book that I am caught. It's a book series that I'm caught up on, so I don't have to worry about reading future books <laughs> now. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha, suckers! Thalergy? <laughs> I don't know. I, I was mean, confused it sounds between correct. Yes. And <laughs> I don't know. I don't. Yeah, that was the difference between allergy and energy. The energy. Okay, so allergy is life juice, and energy is death. Is juice. death juice correct? Yes. Okay. Okay. I think I missed that part where they were explaining it. I mean, they never. Exp- they never I think they explain it. it like in passing with a very hand wavy motion, and you're okay. expected to like grab it as it goes by. Yeah. Yeah, somebody explains it to Gideon being like, well, you're dumb as rocks, so I will give you this, like, thousand I will, mile above view on Yes. This. I will give you the baby definition, because you are baby. And yeah. Gideon's still like... Gideon's like, I'm not paying attention to you right now. Okay. You have tits. I love that so much of Gideon's um, flawed POV is uh, you can lay down to she's just not all that bright sometimes and doesn't care. Like as framing devices go, that's a pretty good one. Like she just isn't paying attention to the stuff that goes on behind her. She's just really interested in like, God damn it, Harrow and sulk, sulk, sulk. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, I read Gideon with, um, like not, a, not like a real book club, but like a couple of friends of mine who I do writing stuff with. We were like, let's read Gideon. We've heard a lot of hype. But bearing in mind that like of the four of us, I play D&D and the others read and write YA romance. Um, so there was a there was a gap in like uh, genre comprehension, um, not in a bad way, just in a surprising way. And I remember distinctly there was a part at which we were in the discussion that one of the girls was like, I felt stupid. 
I, I felt I felt like I was not smart enough for this book. And one of the other girls was like, oh my gosh, me too. I didn't want to say anything, but I felt stupid too. And I was like, y'all, that's why it was done that way. Because we are all stupid. We are all Gideon in the first book. <laughs> we are not supposed to know yeah. what's going on until it's already happening. And they were like, oh. And I was like, Tamsin Muir should not have gotten away with it. And she did. And we love her for it. But I also want to push her off a cliff. So... Like, that's kind of where we're at with this as a structure. Her world building was basically just like, catch up if you can, wee! <laughs> catch me. Figure it out. Yeah. It's up to you. And it's, it, and it's great because it means that you don't actually have to focus on, like, what is actually going on. You can just focus on the plot in Gideon. Yeah. And not have to worry about, like, well, but, you know, it's it's like, it doesn't even have techno babble. Yeah, that's a good point. We, I mean, we get a little bit of something from Sextus, but not a ton. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's do introductions. Do titles. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Justin, this is this is your baby, so you go first. Hi, I'm Justin, and I will try to make out with God's rocking dad bod. I'm Anna, and while other people were learning manners, I studied the blade. Well. No, actually, I studied statistics, but it's the same thing, right? Hello, I'm Grower the Ninth. I own one actual sword, and I'm really more of an Abigail Pent than a Gideon, if I'm being honest. I'm Jude the First, Saint of Bits, and I'm here to be frustrated at all the things that we still do not know about this book's world. And I'm Aaron, and like God, the Resurrection, the Kindly Prince, the Emperor Undying, and King of All Memes, I'm mainly here to collect the actually interesting people around me and make dad jokes. So, uh, we're not doing plot summaries for this, sorry. You're going to have to read these books, uh, or not, you know, but do. I will say that if you haven't read them, you probably should, because spoilers are something that will probably actually interfere with your ability to enjoy Gosh, could so. you imagine somebody listening to these episode, this episode without reading these books? Yeah. It would mean nothing. <laughs> not know like, anything that's going on, and you'll probably have more fun reading the books if you just read them and then listen to us after. It would simultaneously ruin your experience and also not be fun to listen to, because it would make no sense. And, and and then also ruin reading or listening to the books. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, Jude. That like I I saw someone had someone posted something on Twitter, or whatever people do nowadays, and um, was talking about how spoiler culture has quote unquote gotten out of hand and so on. And I someone responded to it. Some I and I cannot remember who, and I feel terrible. Somebody responded to it by saying that um, people who are conscientious of spoilers or people who uh, don't want to spoil things for other people, even after those people are like, oh, I don't care about spoilers, um, that it has more to do with the experience of the reader or the viewer or the listener or the audience um, in partaking of that media, whatever it is. And it's less about like holding information over your head or whatever. And it's more about, well, no, actually the experience I had in reading it in chronological order was so important to me that I want you to have the choice to have that same sort of chronological experience as opposed to me just telling you the thing, um, which I think is cool because I, I do know that like a lot of people are like, whatever spoilers, I don't care. You can just tell me, but I feel like, and, and I think those of us, I mean, all of us here have read these two books now and have 
feelings about them. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's important that we're, you know, noting sort of in an arbitrary way that we're, we're going to be talking about all of it, but it's not going to mean anything to you. And if you listen to this and then you go read the books, you will be like, oh, huh. Instead of like, what? Like, you know what I mean? That's, I think that's an important choice to make. That's all I'm saying. I really appreciate your takeaway from the mic, by the way. Um, I've been training under the master Aaron Katana Saez. I don't know if you've noticed, but I have been taking lessons from him and mic takeaways. So, so before we, we get in here, like really deep in, we have two guests, which is first for us. So let's get everybody intro. So we know who you wonderful people are. Uh, Ali. Hello, it's me. Uh, my name is Allie Grauer. I am a writer, performer, and podcaster. Um, you may know me from such podcasts as uh, Warda, uh, Skyjack's Courier's Call. Um, I've guested on a handful of other people's actual play shows, um, such as Tabletop Squadron and uh, Party of One. Um, a couple others, I think, but I can't remember at the moment. Um, I'm one half of the creative uh, duo Whimsy and Artifice with my husband, Drew Merzieski, who is a GM and performer as well. Um, you can find us at patreon.com slash whimsyartifice. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't think I was going to do bones motherfucker, but like, yeah, bones. Like I, you mentioned already that the, there's a fair amount of body horror in these books that I often do not tend to gravitate towards, but boy, these books gotta talk about them. There's a lot of feelings going on. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for coming. And our necromancer resident, Jude. Yeah. Uh, I'm Jude Vase. Uh, I am the co-host of a couple of podcasts. Uh, the first is Athrobeth, uh, a Tolkien podcast that's really started out as being an opportunity for me to indulge my bullshit about elves uh, and has turned into a general uh, exploration of the weird stuff uh, in Middle-earth. Uh, the other is an L5R podcast called Garbage of the Five Rings. You can find me on Twitter at Aramitic Jude uh, and find all my various projects and stuff. Uh, and you will also notice that I am a noted enthusiast for blood magic. So these books were sort of my my shtick to begin with. And for the record, um, can you get pronouns for both of you? Uh, yes. Uh, she, her. And I forgot to yell my Twitter handle, which is at dreams to become. He, him for me. Cool. I have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> that's um, it. That's the show, so, right? We did it. That's, so it. that's the yeah. show. Yeah. Um, we won. So, so in the in the wonderful in the terrifying horrific universe in which we did this episode, um, Aaron told me to uh, organize the shit. So um, no plot summary. We die like memes. Um, so uh, let's start with the first bullet thing here. That I you know we just put stuff into a word document and we're just doing this what the fuck what the fuck yeah what the fuck so uh when i i got the arc of this back in i think january because my sister is awesome and got a copy of it from the tour booth at ala midwinter and about halfway through uh, there's a sentence that i screen capped and sent to jude and uh amelia which was literally what the fuck is going on (laughs) (laughs) highly accurate yeah 
Also, I want to point out just this is really only interesting to like a very small number of people. But did you catch the differences between the arc and the final and the final one? Uh, some, not all. The I'm intrigued. Oh, God. The whole fucking epilogue that kind of matters. It's gone. I didn't, I didn't notice it, the arc in the arc doesn't have the epilogue with Camilla Hecht. Oh, and the doesn't like. Doesn't it? Who, I had the, e, the does. I had the e arc, and it was yeah. in there. No, yeah. I must have then plain forgot that because I read that section and was very confused. Oh. Uh, but I also read. Um, I also read that arc in about like 14 hours without sleeping. That's fair. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. You, you like, you, you throw back some Red Bulls and you just go, right? Like you just like, yeah. how do you put it down? Right? Yeah. I was very enthusiastic about reading that because uh, I wanted to get it sent off to the next person. That arc <laughs> traveled some miles. Yeah. It's, and, it's traveling uh, back to New York next, I think. Aww. Yeah. I've, I've started calling that book the, the, vil- the, bil- the village bicycle of novels. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it did some traveling. But. I did, however, buy a new copy for myself because I feel like I want to support her and make sure that she writes more books. I did yeah. the same thing. I was I was gifted an e arc, and you know, all all hail to the king undying. But um, I I did buy a, a hardcover when it came out. I was very sad that the the hardcover I received did not have the black sprayed edges, which apparently Me are either. very cool. I thought I that was the version that I was going to get, I and I got the one. standard version. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. You know, it's yeah. okay. It's all it's all fine. But I, I like the because I have a hardcover of Gideon as well that I wanted to have the hardcover to match. Yeah. In prep for this, I looked at uh, the Hugo suite, uh, slate from last year just yeah. to figure out why it didn't win, and I was like, "Holy crap! There's no." No book there that won't be a classic for the next hundred years. That's correct. You know? Yeah, mm-hmm. I had the yeah. I had the fortune of attending the the digital online remotely hosted uh, Nebula conference in the spring, and it. I mean, first of all, that was crazy. Second of all, um, watching the Nebulas happen streaming live with everybody was wild because every i mean especially the novel category but also the short story category also the novella category all of it it, it's i mean 2019 was a wild year for science fiction and fantasy it was i mean they're all going to be classics you're absolutely right i mean broadly i would say the last five years have just been an absolute boon yeah so many really good really innovative books absolutely uh but i think it's really interesting that when when uh, when other authors are asked about, you know, what other books they've read recently and all that, everybody's read Gideon <laughs> and everybody is universally like this fucking book. You know what I mean? Which is really cool. It's really cool that something this, you know, inventive, this innovative, this, you know, cutting edge or whatever you want to say um happened the way it did and that it's also space necromancers like like that that's the thing that blew everybody's minds it's really interesting the first i ever heard of it was uh charles strauss tweeted about it and he was like this is the book that all of you are going to be losing your minds over next year and also i'm a little offended that this is her first book and it's this good (laughs) Because it took yeah. me a really long time to write a good book. And this motherfucker cranked one out first try. And fuck you. 
That's interesting, too, because a lot of people lately, uh, like a lot of other debut authors, for example, Alex E. Harrow, who wrote The 10,000 Doors of January, which is also beautiful, totally different book, but gorgeous book um, if you haven't read it yet. Um, Alex E. Harrow has been uh, chugging away, taking workshops and doing, you know, classes and stuff and and publishing short award-winning short fiction in the science fiction and fantasy markets for the last couple of years before her debut novel, The 10,000 Doors of January, sold. So even though this is Tamsin Muir's first book, and then Harrow being the second book, doesn't mean it was her first book she ever wrote. Yeah. I mean, as somebody who's written three books there, I've written, you know, who, who's published two books, I've written six. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and four of them just never saw the light of day. Oh, yeah. I have a handful that I've sat on that just aren't going to go ever again <laughs> anywhere. And that's just part of the process, you know. Well, I've heard of this book mostly because um, it was like you, Aaron, Aaron, um, you and just a whole bunch of people kept screaming about it. And I, I got to the point where I was like, okay, I have to read this now, otherwise it's going to succumb to the like, well, this is really popular and I don't want to read it because it's popular thing that happens to me sometimes. So I was like, okay, I need to read this now. And then I was like, actually, actually, interestingly, the book didn't hook me up until the point that they got to Canaan House. It really didn't hook me up until that point. I was like, oh, I guess this is okay. I, I trust that every, like, I'll keep reading because I trust, like, that everybody else who is my friend really liked this, but I'm just not seeing it. And then, and then it became, like, a haunted house murder mystery. And uh, that is extremely my bag. It, it just took a little bit for it to fully click for me. See, I'm I'm the one who's who very much was uh, riding on the caboose here. I, I I think it was Jude who first like really started like, oh, this book is amazing, and um, for for I I think I mentioned this in the pod before, but um, I apart from Discworld, I had sort of taken a break from like full like novel reading because it sort of burned me out, um, and I didn't do it a lot, and then I was just like couple weeks ago i was like you know what fuck it let's read it aaron sends me the the harrow copy the harrow arc as enticement and i crank through the last half of gideon the knife and harrow the knife in the space of about 90 hours um which um we are going to link the the twitter reaction thread i had for harrow it's it's a beautiful thing it's such a good thread Um, it is. Um, it gave me so much joy. Honestly, I don't know why I should deactivate my account because it's honestly the best thing I've ever done. And um, it's your legacy now, <laughs> Justin. It's my legacy, and uh, <laughs> yeah. And then that, and um, I had like six individual meltdowns while reading Harrow. Um, Valid. Yeah. 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 Which which led to me screaming in my house a lot. What the fuck? And scaring the dog I live with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, I was gonna say what the fuck being our first bullet point is so vital because uh, Gideon was the first book in a very long time for me 
to to you know mainline plow 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 through it um, while varying whispers and shrieks and gasps of what the fuck like you know just like a symphony of different kinds of what the fuck and I mean that I mean that in and of itself is a huge I feel like achievement for this book so yeah I feel like for me Gideon was like a like a seven and a half or an eight on the like what the fucks per minute scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the hero is like a like an eleven, like a twelve. Yeah, yeah. That book, I remember the the whole first third of that book being just like, what the what the blue hell is going on <laughs> in this book, and being yeah. super like gripped by it, but just super confused. Yeah, no idea yeah. what was going on. And then all of a sudden, like, stuff starts to happen and you start like, am I starting to understand? No, 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 I'm not understanding. No, wait, maybe. Um, and then you get to the end of the book and you're like, okay, every, I, you know, I understand more, but I, I, I'm, now I'm up at like 22, what the fucks, and I have to wait a year and a half or whatever to, to right. get the last book. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly that's exactly it. I did my usual thing that I do in that situation, which is I immediately ran to the internet to look at like fan theories and stuff and spent the next like <laughs> six hours on Tumblr and Reddit and Discords, like reading people's fan theories because I was just I, I had all these like what about this and this and this and read a whole bunch of people's wild some buck wild theories about those books and <laughs> feel like I, I i'm still confused but at least now i know everyone's confused and i'm not an idiot which was comforting yeah after reading how after reading gideon there's just no guarantee that it's going to go in any direction that we expect oh yeah that's the best yeah. part like your theories are sandcastles and there's a wave coming. Like I mean we're we're just super dropped off of a cliff at the end of Harrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although she claims she did an AMA on Reddit a couple weeks ago, and she claims that everything you need to know to, uh, for like the main points of the mystery of the series have already been revealed. Awesome. Okay. I wanna say I believe that. I believe as, that. Okay, I'm sure that is. But I'm a I'm a dumb old himbo. I can't figure that out. <laughs> so I guess I'm just gonna have to wait a year and a half. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I I've I've just been re list or like listening to the audiobook of Gideon over this weekend, and it's I keep having to like pause it and be like, holy shit, it's right there. Like everything mm-hmm. is right yeah. there. Yeah. And it's just these little details that I never picked up on. And then going back to it after reading Harrow, it's like everything makes sense now. It's beautifully done. I mean, not everything. Not everything. Certainly not everything. And it actually highlighted all the things that don't make sense still. Yeah. No, her ability to plot and plan these novels is kind of insane yeah the way that like the plot threads are laid out and um i mentioned earlier that the unreliable that's the phrase i was going for unreliable narrator only took me a half an hour um (laughs) the way that she has gideon as an unreliable narrator because she's an idiot um is so good and 
it and the whole thing is just so cleverly done and it makes the first book it, it's just it's such an an impressive feat the way that you go back and you you read Gideon again after reading Harrow and you see the way she built it but also the way that like Gideon's not reliable she isn't paying attention to things and she's you know focused on other stuff uh it's just it's very impressive it's exquisite and straight up leaves her behind for a lot of the adventure mm-hmm. i mean yeah I, I the the utter testicular fortitude to drop a first novel like that and then the second novel said yeah two th- like half of it is going to be in second person and it's going to be incredibly plot relevant for why it's in second person yeah Oh, I yeah. can't think of any other book that has done there aren't anything any. close to There that. aren't any. That's yeah. what I mean about like how how fucking cutting edge this is that like testicular what did you say testicular fortitude? That's exactly yes. what it is because it's like I mean not only is the craft of each book so like well carved and well like a finely carved arrowhead, right? Like each each chip that she's made in the stone to give us this thing is on purpose and specifically placed and timed. But on top of that, if you zoom out the overarching structure, like the, the architecture of each book itself is so specifically chosen. And the thing is, is like, like she breaks a bunch of rules as a writer in, in Gideon that made me finish the book and go, wow, she got away with a lot for a debut novelist. Like a lot of things in here have specifically been told to me and other people that you should not do and cannot do and do not entertain the idea of doing them as a writer. And she did them and she did them well and beautifully. And it's an awesome rule breaker book. I wonder what book two will be like. And then (laughs) smash cut to all of us starting Harrow going, are you fucking serious? (laughs) I was like second person, Tamsin. Are you are you high? Like, do you want the series to tank? No one's gonna follow this. And then, of course, as you said, like a third of the way through, isn't it, Jude? Where like like a penny drops, and you go, "Oh, that's where we're going with this." Okay, you crafty yeah. bitch. I know what you're doing, but you don't. You really don't. <laughs> and it just keeps going. But like, I agree, Justin, that like the structure of it is so carefully constructed and so purposefully made that it is just shocking. It's just shocking how much she does and gets away with outside of what is considered acceptable for for even modern day speculative fiction, which is pretty, you know, pretty loosey-goosey in my opinion in some, some instances, depending on what magazine you're publishing with or what... Um, you know, what market you're working with, but she just gets away with so much like fucking, it's not even second person. We just think it's second person. Right. You yeah. get, you get to that part of, of Harrow and you go, Oh, this bitch was writing in first person. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then, yeah, it's, I think it's uh, just judging by my tweet thread. It's, it's like 60% of the way through the book where you get the first, hint of it in the dialogue yeah which is the yeah you could have never guessed that he had seen me which is like yeah the part where i was like oh oh okay okay we're doing this yeah it's <laughs> yeah. really good yeah. it's really really good 
Yeah. Well, and you know, she she just like teases you along with things. I'm I mean, I'm rereading the the second book right now, and even in the very first false scene in First House in Canaan House, there's a, a diegetic. Is this really how it happened? Yeah. And it, you know, the, it, she gets like more and more explicit with that. Yeah, that 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 little phrasing builds as stuff gets weirder and weirder. That further along, oh man, and yeah, that, that little tiny, that little tiny, is this how it really happened? Is also, I think, absolutely, completely necessary at that point to leave us as the reader, like that. It gives us the first hint that, like, okay, something's wrong here that's not just in our perceptions of what's gone on previously because we were like that what gun yeah because it's it's you know at that point we're reeling from things just being completely wrong and having that is this really how it happened and that's the point where we can say no it wasn't no it i was there bitches. i was there Somebody had a gun here. And what's funny is that that's like a that's like a lampshading of a very specific sci-fi trope, right? You know, it's the why why is the best weapon in Star Wars a lightsaber? You know, it's a sword and we're in space with spaceships that travel I guess well we'll get to that. Oh, and that that gun was there in Gideon too. Right. It's it's there in the the first lictoral chamber that Mm -hmm. Gideon and Harrow go to. There's a gun and Gideon keeps noticing the gun and wondering if it still works. And it's just like, oh my God. Chekhov who? (laughs) Yes. It's like, we're going to Chekhov's gun this and put it in the next fucking novel. Yeah, but like there's... Because I I thought that that was going to be a Chekhov's gun that Gideon was going to pick it up in that novel, Mm. and then she never did. Yeah. But... There's a lot of... You know, there it is. It's funny, too, because like, I feel like she's like, I'm going to Chekhov's gun a literal gun, but I'm also going to Chekhov's gun like that skeleton and this old man and that person and this thing. Um... Something I have to say, too, is I felt like both books really hit just a really good balance of things I was able to guess versus things I wasn't able to guess yeah. but that made sense once they were re- revealed. Yeah. That there were no twists that were truly out of left field because that's something that will always leave me frustrated in a book of like when there's a twist that's just completely, completely buck wild and you're like, Okay, there's no evidence to support this. There's no twists like that in here. Everything has some basis in the narrative, but it still has that solid, like, you know, it's the thing with mystery novels. Like, a mystery novel is fun because you can guess who did it. And if you do guess who did it, then you have the vindication at the end because you guess it correctly and you're clever. Um, and having that, it, was, it, it felt like about a 50 50 mix to me that a I felt like I was able to guess around 50% of the twists and not able to guess about another half. That's yeah. So I still felt clever. That's a good ratio. I feel like, right. Like I like the idea that, um, even like you said, kind of there, there's nothing completely out of left field, but even the things that blow your mind, you're like, I knew something was up with that. I knew there was something going on there. I had no idea what, and I had too many brain cells on something else, but I knew there was something going on there. 
Mm-hmm. We, we were too distracted by the emperor having a threesome. Apologetically so. That was the really that was the really interesting thing too about all the, these immortals, you know how how they were simultaneously really alien, but also just completely still, still with that chunk of personality that makes them who they are. Yeah, John is so completely like mundane, or he presents himself yeah. as being extraordinarily like mundane and boring and just dad energy. It's amazing. And then not so much, you know. Yeah. And then he vaporizes someone or blows her chest out and, you know. I, I, <laughs> I think there is something to be said for like that. I mean, the, the thing, the, the piece of media that I think like connected me most with the, the, the lictors and John. Um, I like that we're only uh, calling him John now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I will call him. I will call him my god, my emperor. Um, but yeah, can I um, call him Bone Daddy. <laughs> I, I will call him Bone Daddy. <laughs> um, I will. I will call him whatever he wants. But um, <laughs> anywho, um, I think it is like the the media that like immediately like it clicked for me halfway through the through the book is that it reminded me a lot of uh, the movie and Greg Rucka graphic novel, The Old Guard. Oh, um, yeah. Which, if you haven't watched it, please go pause your podcast right now. Go watch that. It's like two hours. It's a very crisp two hours. It's fucking amazing. But it's like, it's about immortals. And I think there's something for like, it's a real, it's a trope I really adore of like people who have seen everything still getting to be human. Mm. Honestly, the lictors are all assholes, but they're like very relatable assholes. Of like, if you were, if you were stuck with the same like, four people for 10,000 years, you'd be a little... You'd be like that too, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, Augustine is like super arch and bitter and Mercy Morn is just the worst. She's the worst. (laughs) She's like... I love her so much, but she's the worst. I for sure thought nobody was going to be worse than uh, Yanthi, but wow. Mercy Morn. Yeah. Yante, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, she's awful, but also in kind of like, in a weirdly kind of endearing way, because she's like, she's 100% the worst, but also kind of owns it. Yeah, like she knows, she's got like, she knows she's yeah. the worst. She's got like fanfic Draco energy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a real good way of putting it. Uh, but Mercy Morn, I feel like is she, uh, the scene I remember most, like really her, her introductory scene, like sets the tone for her where she has just like disabled, uh, Harrow and stuck her in a chair and is just like, wheel and is just basically hijacking her to manipulate, uh, the emperor. And I'm, you're just like, this character is awful. And I now know everything I need to know about her, where she's just like, I've been alive long enough that I, I have no, I, I give no fucks about absolutely anyone or, and I have no respect for any living thing. Uh, or yeah. Whatever lictors are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whatever <laughs> lictors are, which is another question. What are lictors? Uh, oh. <laughs> I don't know if you, at some point, if you were looking to just 
go from hot takes into like into plot dumps. discussion. I don't know if that's on your list. <laughs> I, I would like I, to point I, I out. I really look at the outline. I would. I would like to point out that what what is a lictor is a main unspoken question of Gideon of the book, the first book, and that yeah. by the end of the first book, we're like, aha. And then we start reading the second book and we're still like, wait, what's a lictor? Like, did we get it? Yeah. You you think you know what a lictor is for, I don't know, like 30 pages? (laughs) Somewhere in there. (laughs) It's a a rough estimate. Yeah. 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 Like, it's just a word that Harrow gets excited about for most of the first book, but you don't have any idea what it is. And then you think you know what it is basically for the end of the first book and a little bit of the second book. And then it immediately becomes clear that you don't have any idea. And by the end of the second book, you're just like, fuck, I don't know. Yeah, because I mean, there's like two kinds of lictors or something. At least. Yeah. At least yeah. two kinds. Maybe more, depending on which theory of what's going on with the emperor you ascribe to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, is the emperor a lictor even? Yeah. What the fuck is the emperor? Yeah. 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 I mean, also, what the fuck is Gideon herself? What's, yeah. <sighs> because, yeah. like... And here we get into real spoiler ter- territory. But okay. Yeah, we've been good so, so far, but not anymore. <laughs> Phew. <Yeah>. Let's go. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, uh, that Gideon is the emperor baby. But, like, that does not explain all of the weird shit that goes on with Gideon. No. Like, yeah. Like, how is she still alive? Which we don't even... Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Like, that she survived, like... Like the, enough neurotoxin to kill multiple adults. Yeah, no, I think that that is the first one, and there's no, certainly no, no kind of good answer in the books. I'm interested in it. Uh, Sextus also says that basically Gideon should have died when Harrow um, siphons her. Yeah. In the trial. Yeah. That like Harrow fucks up in that trial, and Gideon should have been dead. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's that phrase there. And then Gideon died. Mm-hmm. Well, no, actually, she passed out. And it's like, mm. Or did mm. she? Mm. Well, and she can see I'm... necromantic energy, too. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. in the first trial, she sees that energy, and then they never discuss it again. And it's just like, I'm sure that's a throwaway. That's never going to come up again. I thought that was because Hera was riding her. No. Well, it, mm, it, mm, it was because... But but she explains it to Harrow and Harrow's like, no, that's wrong. You you couldn't see that. Yeah. And Gideon's like, fine. Guess we're never going to talk about this again. Yeah, but Harrow's also <laughs> Harrow. you know very confident about things that she's wrong about. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you've got like, I mean, frankly, you've got two books with two really unreliable narrators. One because they're one because she's a fucking idiot, and the second one because she's so fucked up. And like I, I okay, I wanna I'm gonna like talk about Hera for a moment just as like a character because I actually like really like her as somebody who is just like I would almost consider Harrow like almost one of the antagonists of Gideon. At least for the like the first two thirds of Gideon. Because it's like she is like, I do not want you to participate in the plot of this story. Go go away. Um and just like her supreme confidence, um, which eventually in the second book becomes like a whole thing of you only know how to do bone magic, and this is fucking crippling you. <laughs> yeah, her confidence is she's she's like the living embodiment of confidently wrong. Some because she's 
she's extraordinary at the things she's good at, but also she does. She's by her own admission, fuck awful at like flesh and spirit magic. And also she's crazy or thinks she is. And like knows that like knows she's crazy or thinks she is. And yet still operates as if she has absolutely every answer, but kind of because she's had to, since she's been like running her whole house since she was like 14. Literally running her parents. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man, that in and of itself, that, that peg in this string of pegs on the map is like, I literally was like, Oh shit. (laughs) Like she is going to be a big deal wherever we end up with her. That yeah. scene, though, where the Emperor uh, absolves her is just so... Oh, yeah. That's yeah. a really moving scene. Yeah. Yeah. The, that's... Well, and, I mean... So, I have a, I have thoughts about that scene. Okay. Oh, and and, and that, scene, that scene is like the perfect mirror of the scene where Gideon and Hera are in the... Are in the, the pool. The mm. pool yeah. together. And Hera finally explains, like, everything as far as she knows it to Gideon and you know Gideon asks was it was it worth it and Harrow says you know if it if I you know make it to be Lictor and rejuvenate the house and give us a future then no even then it will still not be worth it and the the two of them have this like paired shared trauma from their upbringing and growing up and like up until that point the only way that they've related to that is just being awful to each other Mm -hmm. yeah i i i really like the scene with the emperor where she like tells him where he she tells him about the 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 womb death or whatever the cradle death and i really like that scene where they uh where she confesses and explains what's up with her aura or whatever it is that he's seen, and he absolves her. Uh, but I think it's actually a really nefarious scene when you look at it later, because I think I think we're going to discover later on that his absolution of her was kind of self-serving. Um, getting into like wibbledy theories here, but uh, they. The other two lictors talk a lot about like the t- and and uh, Commander Wake all talk about like the ten billion, and I strongly strongly suspect that part of why John is so strong is so he t- the the story that they go with is that oh the planet was dead or dying and he like resurrected them all. And I kind of wonder if maybe he didn't re- resurrect them so much as kill them. Oh, yeah. And um, then resurrect some of them, uh, which would make him like a much more like he's absolving her because if she's yes. guilty. Yes. He can't. He's so much more guilty. So like. Yeah. She has to be an innocent for him to be anything cl- approach to for him to have anything close to a clean conscience. That's really interesting, Jude, and that's super. I mean, it's worth noting too that like John 
as far as we know, in theory, did it consciously and on purpose? And Harrow did not, right? Like, Harrow didn't mm-hmm. kill the other kids in the nursery. Her parents did. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's interesting that... Um, and again, that might that might be an interesting sort of arrow pointing towards John's been alive too long and it, it has skewed his understanding of what's good and what's not and what's okay and what's not. And that Harrow, having not been alive super long, um, but being mega powerful, um, is, is still feeling guilty for something that she didn't even do technically that was done to yeah. her, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Could we just sort of, because it probably would actually be useful for me, talk through the general outline of the timeline of Dominicus, etc.? Okay, so can I drop my hot take? Yeah, my my hot take here. Dominicus is soul. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, and that ten billion—that's Earth with a couple centuries of inflation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Because uh, I don't think I like from what everything we've seen, like if if like you know this is earth and everything. It's probably not that far in the future. Yes. Like when we get the, the break point, because I don't think like, yeah, I mean, all the technology is too familiar. And six houses clearly on Mercury. The memes. Specifically. Yeah. 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 The memes. The, um, one of the, the other things that Muir said in, uh, the AMA was commander wakes name is not an accident. Yeah, no. Com- like Commander Wake has a uh, a Maori phrase in it, as well as that yes. is from the New Zealand national anthem. Well, and a uh, I want to say Limp Biscuit. Yes. Lyric. <laughs> yes. Wasn't it Eminem? Eminem. Oh, it's Eminem. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. You're right. Eminem. I didn't catch that one. I didn't and catch that one. I caught yes, that one before which... I caught the Maori one. I was like, Burr? same. Yeah, and and it's but it's intentional. Yes, She's it's on like, purpose. I didn't just like throw it in there for a giggle. Like, it's there because it's supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I I hundred percent agree that like Dominicus is soul, and uh, the first house is Earth, uh, and the sixth house is on Mercury. At some point, there's some sort of thing with the blood of Eden. And well, so thermonuclear war or something. Well, no, see, so that's the thing. That's his story. Oh, okay. But yeah, he basically says like climate change and thermonuclear shit. Yeah. But the, at some point, a lot of people on earth die and supposedly the sun goes out and John reignites the sun with necromancy. Not sure how that works. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And brings back a bunch of people with neck resurrects a whole mess of people with necromancy and does that to the whole solar system or, and then, and then does the necromantic flip of the planets, which is a thing I don't understand the purpose of, uh, I guess, except that it like produces thanergy. Yeah. Cat. That you're, you're, you're producing just an entire planet's worth of energy yeah, all at once for the necromancers to work with. Is so, it thanergy right. or thalergy? Thanergy is death energy. Thalergy is life energy. You're converting an entire planet's worth of thalergy to an entire planet's worth of thanergy. Yeah. That's yeah. the flip. Yeah, and that yeah, gives the necromancers stuff to work with. It. And it turns out if you do that, you create resurrection beasts. Yes, 
and oh hey strip mining planets who would ever think that things would go wrong with that yeah Yeah. my so the theory that i really like is that uh there's only been eight uh resurrection beasts listed in the story they only talk about there being eight resurrection beasts and there should be nine based on the nine houses and the nine planets no there's a point where they yeah they they uh gosh i don't think i had a tweet about this but there is a there is a point where it is called out that it's like there should be nine there are eight that are discussed and gideon i think in her narrator form notes the mathematical problem there yeah Uh, and if your math is so bad that gideon notices it oh is it the emperor no well Uh, it could be but i i think it's electo Oh, yes, because because when they discuss like the when eight, I think when it's eighth house discusses the um, the locked tomb, they say that it's like the great beast of the resurrection that's in Mm. the tomb. Um, Of course, eighth house is awful. (laughs) Um, They are the worst. So I just I just thought of something. So if Dominicus is soul and. I think we can all probably agree that ninth house is on Pluto, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If ninth house is like not supposed to actually be a house, does this mirror how Pluto's not a planet anymore? I think that that's definitely why. Yeah, that's funny. But like when I first started reading Gideon, I was like, Oh, it's because, I mean, before I even got to a part where I could even think about, like, the solar system parallel, that I was like, oh, it's cool that, like, the ninth house, these bone people, whatever. And then you get to Canaan house and you're like, wait, they're all necromancers? That's not what I was expecting. I don't know about you, but I was not expecting that at all. Yeah, exactly. And to discover that there were literally at least if not more nine different kinds of necromancy i was like this is wild and super smart but yes to to go back to what you were saying i definitely think that that's a that's a purposeful nerd uh space nerd point for tamsin muir that yeah she was like and they'll be on the ninth house because pluto's not a planet anymore she doesn't talk like that i'm pretty sure (laughs) she's from new zealand i think (laughs) let me try it again hang on yeah I'm going to make it so that the the ninth house is uh, actually Pluto because Pluto's not a planet anymore, according to NASA or whoever. So that's going to be a joke for me. And maybe Taika Waititi. Neil deGrasse, the fuck Tyson. <laughs> that's See, uh, space nerd of me is like, I understand why Pluto is not a planet anymore. Also, the memes are fucking hilarious. Cry more. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's my current, like, all of the shenanigans and mysteries around, like, like how did necromancy happen and where, what's that timeline like? Yeah. That's the stuff that's, like, blowing my brain yeah. right now. How did the emperor unlock all this? That's a really like, great what? question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, who's his, so Electo is supposedly his cavalier. 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 But... Did he have necromancy before that? Like, if, if, like, there's all kinds of, like, timing questions on how that happened and where did necromancy, how did the necromancy part work? Yeah. Um, Mercy Morn's 
at one point says that Electo was like a monster even before she was was made into a cavalier. She has a comment about that. Yeah. So there's definitely something weird about Electo. So I'm super excited yeah. to see that. Um, I have a suspicion well, I know who's in. Yeah. Who and what? Who's who? The body is at the end of Harrow the Ninth, and who's in it. It was with the necromancy stuff. That's really, you know, and you mentioned Strauss way early in this conversation, but that's really the crossover point that like hooked me. The like the the way Muir took sort of took Clark's third law and it was just like, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. 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 Threw it's it in a blend. Magic, it's science, it's both, it's neither, huh? Yeah, I, I so like I have problems with Clark's third law, mostly just because it's like I think like like once you try to de- once you try to like put too many rules on your magic, I think it's like it's either you are you are a finely tuned ma- machine and you have built a closed system that works, or it's just a fucking mess or you're constantly fact checking yourself. I think Muir sidesteps that by it's fucking necromancy. I don't got to explain shit. Yeah, and and filtering it through unreliable narrators ultimately yeah and it's like and like the the characters all you like they say like oh i've got a theorem here or, or like you know there are theorems that they understand or god but yelling we at are not given stop doing theorems in the river <laughs> yeah but we aren't given we aren't given like any insight into that because we don't need to know it doesn't matter to us yeah, yeah. um and, god and did we talk like, about the river oh, oh yeah yeah <laughs> The, the the part where it's like I, and Muir had a uh, Reddit AMA where she said that she had never seen anything Warhammer like that is before. so hilarious and, and somehow she like there's so many Warhammer things I I've joked that like Tamsin Muir if if that is true she is like naturally spawned a more terrifying and cool version of Warhammer Forty Thousand than Games Workshop could hope in their wildest dreams to ever emulate. Also gayer, right? Like, yeah, objectively oh, yeah. gayer. So yeah. gay. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk yeah, about the, the river? river? Yeah, I have so many thoughts and questions. So imagine a river. So, so imagine a magma here. <laughs> John, so bad. How is this guy? So- yeah. How is he in charge? Okay, I have one side question about one side thought about the emperor before we get into the river. Yeah. Uh, do you think he's actually that much of a doof, and it's all like no. a clown act to cover the fact that he's really like a fucking supervillain, or do you think he's actually that much of like like a meme lord dad? And he just also happens to be like a civilization devouring villain, like in addition to being like your weird dad. I think he's tired. Um, I think he, I mean, and obviously like we were just talking about, we don't know the, we don't even know an approximate timeline for a lot of the origin stuff that went into John um, and the universe at large. But like, I feel like, He's, he, we can safely say he made some choices Mm. and uh, those choices had 
uh, ramifications that some of which he was prepared for, some of which he wasn't. And I think the more time has gone by, the more he sort of has sunk into this, like we talked about the tired, like meme dad energy that like he just has gotten to a point where there's only so much he can do, but he's also come so far. He can't not do the bad stuff. He's got to keep doing it. And he's tired about it. Yeah. And I feel like with that much power and that much time behind you, you have to hold on to those personality elements or you would just evaporate into thalergy. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think like, whatever. Yeah, I think this is a very much a situation situation that Borke and Nalastos, where it's like, I think he is a monster. Like, I think he is unequivocally a monster. Um, That does not mean I stand any less or as any less hard. Um, But I also think like, between like Yante and Hero, it's he gets to like he gets to put on a face he doesn't usually get to, and I think it's one that is on that like is an honest version of him, where he's like, I want to you know train new people. I want to be a teacher again, um, and I th- and like I'm doing and I think he I think at some I think on like many good villains, um, he his motivations are, to him, consistent and right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that's a... I mean, I think that... the I, And I don't... Okay, so it's been a while since I have read either of the books. I've read both of them, um, and I've listened to the Gideon audiobook kind of over Drew's shoulder while he was listening to it. Um, but... So I may I may have misconstrued this completely, but... In my head, um, he did what he did, whatever that was at the beginning of all of this, for a reason that was not selfish. In my in my head, and I don't know if that's my opinion or if that's what I've filled the blanks in, like what I've chosen to subconsciously fill in the blanks in with. That that's that's also what I felt yeah. is that like that there's a reason why he's revered as a god. Yeah, that the the thing that he did was big and terrifying and no one should have been able to do it, but he did it and it was for a reason for other people in some capacity, but that the the subsequent like ramifications of that big thing have trickled down over the eons and into if I had not done this thing, less people would be dead now. But you know what I mean? Like, like the, I don't necessarily want to say like the lesser of two evils kind of a situation. Cause we just don't know yet. Like we don't know why or like what exactly the choice was, but I feel like he did something big and terrifying that he should not have been able to do for a reason to save people or to make things not bad or to stop everything from exploding forever permanently and everyone dying. And then that has turned into, yeah, that has turned into over the years that has turned into, I now have to do all of these other things to make sure that this continues in the way that it does. But to, for example, uh, like the blood of Eden and all of that, that like to the people who have no idea what God is actually up to that they're like, People are dying. Planets are exploding. What's going on? We have to stop him. He's a monster. And I agree, Justin. I think he probably is a monster. But the 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 stuff my brain has filled in those gaps with is, but he did it to save us. And because because he is 
um, I mean, because he is more powerful than any other person and because he has assumed the mantle of being God as a result of those choices and those responsibilities that the people who are upset about it or dying or whatever um, couldn't possibly fathom like the scope of the stuff that he's doing, which is why it looks like he's the ultimate bad guy, even though, do you know what I mean? And it's interesting because like, I feel like, I feel like any other fantasy or sci-fi story, we would be on the ground. We would be with the blood of Eden. We'd be on the ground. We'd be fighting. We'd be doing like insurgent stuff and like a uh, rebel spy. You know, we got to get out there and, and chase the emperor down, et cetera, et cetera. Only to later discover, oh, but he's actually God and he did it to save us all along. Oh no. You know, but instead we're coming at it from like a weird side angle with a, a himbo, a, uh, a himbo in the first book and like uh, someone on the verge of a psychotic breakdown in the second book. And it's like, th- we're, are we watching it from the, are we watching it from behind? Are we watching it from the inside? Like what's ha- what, where are we seeing this from? Right? Because the scope of it is so large and in other fantasy stories, we, you know, we'll hear legends about the gods or whatever, but we don't actually see them in action. And in this book, we're like walking around listening to John complain about the good old days and smoke a cigarette and, you know, kiss his lictors on the mouth by accident and stuff like that. You know, it's just really interesting because like the scope that she's created for this universe is massive, massive. And we're seeing it from an angle that we never get to see fantasy and sci-fi from. And I think that that's buck wild. Yeah, it, it's large. And for, for most of it, it's most feels very empty. You know, yeah. Canon House feels very empty. The even the even the scenes with all of the functionaries on the Emperor's flagship still gives a feeling of emptiness, which I think is the most jarring thing about the epilogue. Yeah. Yeah. Like that there's like people a, and a city and stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, the idea of like going out and getting takeout. Oh. Th- that that epilogue f- kind of fucked me up, to be honest. Like for reasons, right? But I read it like six times in a row because I was like, I'm not getting, I'm, I'm missing something. Something is not clicking in my brain. And it, I realized it's because um, I thought we had gone back in time in the epilogue. Mm. I thought this is before the stuff hits the fan. But then it ends with Camilla. And I was like, so it's, where are we right now? Like what's happening, Right which is 90% of both books, to be honest. Um, but the, 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 the fact that she's playing with these ideas and these tropes and these concepts without actually feeding that to us is really cool and interesting because, yeah. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but for a chunk of Gideon, I thought, did Gideon's mom fall through a wormhole and there's like a time travel aspect to this that we're not getting to because of the whole meme thing, right? The meme references. I was like, maybe Gideon's mom is actually from the past or Gideon's from the past. And this is like the far distant future or some, there's something, there's a piece of this puzzle that doesn't make sense. Right. Um, among many. And so I, the, 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 that epilogue from Harrow, I, I I think you're right because it was so empty before and then suddenly there was all this life and it felt very normal and real and modern. And I was like, but what year is it? Like, tell me what year it is because this doesn't feel like that. Yeah. And, and you know, for me, I, I similarly like 
had massive cognitive dissonance for that. And I was stuck with thinking that that had to be some sort of like alternate reality because we've had this book where we've seen alternate reality after alternate reality all constructed in Harrow's mind. Some of them truly bizarre. And that's what that initially hit me as is like, oh, so there's another alternate reality now. And I was like, and that could that could be a thing. I, I think it's probably real, but I mean, who knows with these things? That's a great point. I hadn't. Yeah, that I think subconsciously that's that's definitely there because of all of those um, yeah. in universe fanfic AU chapters that this bitch put in the book. The audacity like of the the coffee shop AU. Like this could just be Harrow like constructing this in her brain as she floats away in the river. Or it could be Electo constructing it in her brain. I personally think that it's Electo in Gideon's body. Oh shit. Yeah, so I this is getting into my like galaxy brain conspiracy theory which is that i don't think that gideon's body is dead yeah no, you mentioned here. that I, will you talk about that i don't think she can die i don't think yeah she can i don't die. think she can Fair. die so harrow just sort of um, drooped her her soul out yeah oh maybe that no so, soul so the left thing, the body behind yeah so the thing like we see over and over again in gideon we see all these things where there's there's something that should have killed Gideon, but she did not die, or she bounced back way too fast, um, etc. Like, you know, culminating in that, like, and then Gideon died, except, no, wait, she passed out. And so the idea of her, like, dying at the end there seems completely like, no, that, that can't be real, right? Like, that there's a chance that, like, she is, in fact, unkillable. In some way. So that one flesh, one end thing uh, may have implications for Harrow, too. Yeah. Right. Mm. Um, and then, so the the scene that, like, I keep coming back to is the scene where Harrow sees, sees into the shuttle. And she sees... Oh, I don't have yeah. the direct quote here, but she sees a cardboard cutout of a woman with red hair. And she later, like thinks that she later when they, she she sees the sleeper she says something like you know like that looks sort of like the cardboard cutout in that shuttle but like not exactly yeah my personal theory yeah that, i think I'm that right the there. fact that it was a cardboard cutout in air quotes is just gideon's bra- or not gideon harrow's brain just being completely incapable of processing mm-hmm. yeah fuck because yeah. she she yeah. doesn't bring it up to the people around her in that shuttle scene, right? Right, because because yeah. at that point, like she's fucked up her own brain so hard that she's yeah. processing the name Gideon the First as Ordus the yeah, First. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which and like, like and she's got her mess of letters to herself yeah. that are just there for her to maintain this ridiculous yeah self you know like the this ridiculous editing gideon out of her life also i i am sort of proud of myself um in the middle of my thread this is like we're talking like 
for somewhere in the first like 15 20 tweets i make a rot 13 that is just wait okay and i drop this here it's like oh no yeah giddy giddy just or Harrow just edited Gideon out of her memory so yeah, hard. Yeah, so hard. Because yeah. she couldn't process it. Yeah. I was this like... Is, this is one of those things that, like, is guessable, I think, but still leaves you feeling clever when it's revealed. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, no, I think my guess is that, that the cardboard cutout was Gideon in a coffin or, or like, suspension chamber or something. And when John briefly is vaporized and is dead for a little bit there, um, that's when Electo is finally like woken up in the tomb mm. and finds her way via Harrow into Gideon's body. Because they're in that last epilogue, she they're like showing the body like bones and like titty mags and stuff. Or is it titty mags? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, there, yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a copy of Frontline Titties of the Fifth. And, yep. and Harrow says that magazine doesn't even exist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that it? No, that's that's in that's when Harrow is in the... Oh, you're right. Uh, that's when Harrow climbs yeah, into the tomb. Yeah. 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 I have thoughts about that scene, too. We got to talk about that next, uh, because... Yeah. No, so <laughs> but they're showing her, like, different things, and I think it's Camilla trying to figure out who's in Gideon's body, oh, whether it's yeah. Gideon or Harrow. Mm. That's my theory. Yeah. And oh, and the speaking of speaking of the tomb too, um from rereading Gideon, I don't know how I read through the original like description of the tomb coming out of Harrow's mouth and didn't think immediately that that was not a tomb but suspended anima- animation. Yeah. Cuz it clearly clearly is like a cold slab with ice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, what do people think was up with that last scene with Harrow in the tomb? I My immediate reaction was that, like, not unlike we have now, by the end of Harrow, the book, we have come to understand that she can go places via her brain and, um, and via the river. That, like, we know she can do it. We don't know how it works. She might know how it works, but we don't need to know how it works. We just know that she can do it, right? So my thought was that, like, because she has said repeatedly, like, this is the only thing that really matters to me is that that girl in that tomb. And so at the end of all things, right, her brain takes her there so that that she knows that, A, that's the only place that matters because otherwise nothing was worth it, right? And B that whatever is happening, if it's not the end of all things, that she'll be safe there. Like, that was my thought. Like, that she went there because that's the only place that matters. That's the only place that made sense for her to go, whether or not she's actually dead. And I think we all as readers can safely say she she probably ain't because yeah. that's how these books work. That was my yeah. first thought as well, is that she traveled through the river to get there. But then someone pointed out to me the line, frontline titties of the first, that's not even a real magazine. But it's a magazine that um, Gideon... Jokes about all the time. Jokes Jokes about about all the time. Repeatedly. Yeah. My... Yeah. I think Gideon is still driving the body and Harrow is... I think that that space is the, the mental 
space that Harrow made mm. to put Gideon in when she when she oh, separated yeah. Gideon in her as head as a lictor as a as a lictor yeah she put Gideon in a tomb just like her precious sleeper right or or the body yeah and so when she falls through the river she goes someplace safe which is that spot into this tomb that she she made for Gideon that's why there's a sword and that's why there's one of Gideon's titty mags and yeah and for and for our you know beautiful auditory medium it, it so the the chapter heading for that chapter has the um the slice through it yeah indicating that it's in the river maybe or at the yeah. very least in a mental space right in a yeah. psychological right. space that's a good point yeah so that's that's so that wasn't my I didn't come up with that one. That was somebody pointed that one out to me. But I think that's, I think very likely that that's accurate. That Harrow just sort of climbed back into her own head and took a nap uh, and let Gideon keep driving because she's been through some stuff. So I I took a look really quick because we were talking about the cardboard cutout in the shuttle. Um, And it, it says... Uh, that it's an enormous flimsy poster in a chipped frame. And it's a head and shoulders head and shoulders photograph of an unsmiling, adamant person, in all assumption a woman, staring fixedly at you as though calculating how much effort it would take to snap your neck. She's dressed in black to the chin, and her red hair curls thickly about her neck and shoulders. Thick, itchy streams of blood begin to ooze down your sinuses. So that's obviously wake, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Which yeah. then will lead to later right seeing gideon and like not like thinking yeah. it looks like the person in the shuttle but isn't right yeah also cam has got to know like something really really weird is going on with harrow there yeah yeah i like that like, everybody picks up on it over the course of the book everybody's like what is wrong with you yeah like everybody starts to the cotton on to how like busted up her brain is it's interesting too because like as the readers we're going is it because is it because she and gideon became a lictor together is it because harrow is already pretty messed up mentally is it because gideon is mega powerful and we don't understand the full scope of that yet is it both is it neither is it because harrow doesn't know how to have feelings is you know what is it yes i mean roll the dice guys it could be anything yeah i yeah it is a i will bubble in all of the above yeah Yeah, my 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 very specific wild prediction here is that there's going to be at least one chapter in first person plural in electo please (laughs) yeah that is that cover all the bases yeah i don't know i didn't know how much i wanted that until it's a great 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 option right there, yeah. Because, you know, that would be the, the perfect lictorhood or whatever that they keep talking about. Mm, yeah. Yeah. We. So we have other things on our, like, list of things we want to talk Wait, we about. We should. Yeah. We have some... A lot of these are memes, dear God, yeah. so and we apologize I'm, for I'm that. I'm going to start this out by saying... We if we want to talk about memes, I'm going to start this out by saying as soon as Justin started the, the Twitter thread, uh, I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for, in my copy, uh, page 475... 
with, with the greatest uh, dad joke of oh, yes. all sci-fi oh, time. Yes. I yes. am not fucking dead. Hi, not fucking dead. I'm dad. God. And he literally <laughs> is. Uh, yeah. God. Oh, God. I laughed uh, so hard when I read that. And I think the, my very first reaction was then to text Aaron and be like, this fucking guy. Are you kidding me with this guy? 10,000 year years old and he's still making fucking dad jokes? Piece of shit. Ugh, I love that joke. It's funny. I apparently am an old and I didn't get like so many of the memes the first time I read it through. It wasn't until my second read through when people had pointed out a bunch of them Aww. that I, I caught them. Because I, I caught like one in 10 maybe. Yeah. Like it was it was sad. I felt real old when I saw the list of all the memes in in these books. There were definitely some I did not get. And I I'm probably I, I'm definitely the most meme out of like the standard cast of complete discography. Well, I guess a lot of them are home homestuck. That that is the thing I do not. Yeah, I've never about. I've never even touched that. Apparently yeah, she I, came up and like wrote a bunch of fan fiction in the Homestuck fandom. And so there's a number of like references and memes about f- from that. Fuck. Also, I, w- I want to say that just like for the record, um, the original Twitter thread that spawned this, um, the, the, the amount of reactions I got to hi, not fucking dead. I'm dad. Um, was like, honestly astounding <laughs> and like i literally had like half a dozen people dm me within half an hour of just like they were just like cackling at me and i and it was in a it was in the most loving way that i've ever been dragged before <laughs> i was i was just waiting until you got to the the second dinner party oh yeah well that too <laughs> because i knew that that'd be a personal attack at you Wait, the second is that is that soup or sexy times? I can't remember the order. Sexy times. Sexy oh. times. <laughs> soup. Soup. Or I knew sexy that, that times. was a personal attack. Yeah, no. Um, honestly, whenever whenever they get around to making the Lock Tomb as an animated series Fuck. or live action series, I just know that like I'm going to have to like stealthily follow like twenty like Augustine Thirst accounts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Man, yeah, they're gonna make it like a Castlevania, a Netflix Castlevania style show out of this. Well, of they'd course. have to, right? Because I feel like the animation lends itself to the the tone of mm-hmm. the books, but it, it would have to be something. I mean, they can't. Like, I don't know how they would do it live action. Badly, I mean. Yeah, I don't. Th- I mean, I mean, yeah. like Expanse is done live action. Yeah, and but that, that doesn't like, have skeletons. A, but that's that's a hard sci-fi thing. And yeah, a yeah, lot of CGI would be language. needed. Yeah, that, yeah. But I mean, like that. There are other shows that have like so much CGI. Yeah, but just like I, yeah. the they river just have a really and big budget. Yeah, I just think there, there's no. This is one of those projects where animation is what it wants to be done in. Yeah, that's true. If yeah. they yeah. were to do it, the there, flexibility well, is there. How do you do second person in an in animation? Like, yeah, it's so weird. I mean, like, I, I, I like. I think the reason why it doesn't work in live action is just we don't have like 
there is good visual language for like the necromancy would look so bad. Yeah. Yeah. And real and in, in, in live action stuff. But like yeah. but yeah, yeah, if we do an animated like anime treatment of this that the bone stuff would make a lot more visual sense i think it would look yeah it would look really good yeah it'd be dope well the the second person you could maybe have with like a creepy narrator type of thing it'd be hard because the narrator gives it away yeah and i I think the interesting thing is that like right like so if it's a book right we are being given the rest of our senses by the narration, right? We're being given yeah. visual, given sound, given taste, given touch, all of that. But in a visual medium, we already have the visual. So they have to then decide what to give or not give us. And by virtue of it being visual, I feel like we can interpret subconsciously smells and sounds based on what we're seeing. But but you're right, that the, that the need for that narration to tell this particular story is so vital that it may not work at all. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated by adaptations, the way that how close or how far you hew from the source material and the changes that you make is, is a subject I find really fascinating. And um, I suspect that to do a good, as in an enjoyable adaptation of the second book you would have to get pretty creative. I think you would have to go for the spirit of the thing, not the letter of the thing. Yeah, they'd have to re... You're right. They'd have to, like, reinterpret it completely. Yeah. (sighs) Okay. um, Wild idea. Um, For one thing that would make it at least visually disconcerting would be to shoot it in, like, a POV type of... Or not not shoot, but, like have it be, be have it be pov like first person mm, that's i mean that's to the visual a- equivalent right of having yeah in in writing when we have second person pov that is disturbing to the brain it's unsettling it puts you kind of off kilter and the the visual equivalent yeah is having it be shaky cam first person pov like that would be really Please, interesting I hope not shaky shaky cam because then i won't be able to watch it would have it, to be so yeah. so here is my so here is my here is my thought for how you do the narrator thing. Whichever actor you get for for Gideon the first, Ordis the first in this case, have them be the narrator for two thirds of that season. Oh. Until you get the flip. I dig it. Mm. That that would be like if you're doing like you have to be creative with this, otherwise you give otherwise you're sort of giving it away mm. because you don't have the Gideon, because if you get Gideon's voice actor to it, and you can do stuff with that, but it's also going to be like a that's going to clue people pretty early on, and I think you could, yeah. I, you could maybe get away you, with that if depending on your yeah. Mind. So you you're suggesting it be Gideon original flavor? Yeah, Gideon, uh, <laughs> uh, Gideon, Gideon classic um, narrating. That's interesting because Gideon classic in the story doesn't actually have lines till much, much later, right? Um, that would be a, a, an interesting choice. Another option would be Wake, to have Wake do it. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Because then, cause then if it's a, I mean, if it's a woman, we're thinking, is this Harrow's new Lichter voice? Is this Harrow's mom's voice? Is this, you know, there's a lot of options for who it could be. 
Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Another thing that might be possible would be to have the, like, to do some sort of voice editing thing and have the voice, like, gradually change yeah. throughout mm. the season. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I mean, if it were me, I would, I would not do, I would not try and the second person thing is so good but it's a literary thing yeah it's i would not try and ape that in a visual medium i would try and tell the same story uh, with visual like with a in a with a with visual methods in, but not try and like copy the second person thing. Yeah. But try and like I said, try and copy the spirit. So find try and find a way to conceal, like to to indicate Gideon's presence and that Gideon's watching mm. in a way that is really subtle, but also kind of ever present without it being like a narrator. Like I think it would be. I think one of the areas where people get where a lot of adaptations get into trouble is when they try and uh, emulate really strictly like too close to the material, either in terms of like frame by frame by frame, scene by scene by scene, or when they try and really closely copy like the the format or like the structure of a story. Um yeah, I mean, so like the the thing you could do is is use you're right visual language. So you know you could have Harrow look at somebody and they're wearing aviators, and you look back and they're not, or somebody has had red hair briefly, or you know. Well, the way I you could, the way I would do that is I would say that like I I would make a visual differentiation between the AU the dream the stuff that happens in the river the dream stuff. And out, like for example, I would say that she can't see red hair in in the in in the Mithraeum. Like she just can't see it; it comes out gray or something like that. Um, like, that's cool. I would There's leave... so much you could do with the visuals of the body too. Yeah, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. Um, there's lots of ways you can indicate that she's scrubbed Gideon out of her memory um, without without having the like narrator second person narrator uh and then you would have to find some other ways to like hint that gideon's still there in there like watching um but i think it i i think it would be more productive to do that to find new visual ways of indicating that rather than trying to like recreate the second person because i I just feel like a good example of this is uh the magicians which is a show that is not without its problems, but is one of my favorite shows of all time. Uh, and the first season is very, very close to the first book in that series, or the like, the first half of that book of the first book, and it's a rough ride. That first season's yeah, not great uh, because it's super close to the book. And then after in the second season, they're just like, eh, fuck it, and they just take the material and they just go hog wild with it. They're just like, we're just going to start making stuff up and we'll keep the characters and we'll keep the material and we'll just do our own thing with it. And it works because they're, they, they preserve the ideas and the characters and these, the story beats, but then they, they reshape it for 
television for this new me- for this different medium. Um, I felt like uh, I felt like Lock and Key also did that really well. The Netflix adaptation of that because I hugely love the comics of that and the the Netflix adaptation. It drew a lot of aspects from the comics, but it was not like frame for frame adaptation and the um it but it really hit the same notes of like in the ways that it was unsettling etc i think it's really cool that we're at a point with with some i wouldn't say all media but some media we're at a point where um where previously previously we um as a culture, as a society, we were all about finding the thing that everybody wanted and making it into a movie or into a series of movies or into a TV show or whatever, right? Um, and then, and it had to be faithful, that faithful, faithful adaptation became the buzzword, right? That like, if it wasn't accurate to the book, that people would kind of lose their minds. Um, and that now, you know, a decade or so later, we're we're in this phase where we're starting to discover, kind of like what you were talking about with the magicians, Jude, that like that there are some pieces of media that are um that have more to offer than just what they are to start with. And that we are starting to discover that it's okay for them to not be accurate. Like the things I'm going to I'm just going to say it. The things in the Game of Thrones series that worked really well didn't happen in the books that way because they were like, okay, we're going to preserve this thing and this thing and then we're going to take it in this other direction and it worked because it was for television. It was not for a book series um of massive doorstop bible-sized, you know, hard card covers that and then the things that um you know, obviously that didn't end super well for any of us, but that, that along the way, like I still have very fond memories of, of, uh, being involved in the game of Thrones. I don't know, fandom, I guess, because the TV show was so good in some parts, so bad in other parts, but so good in some parts that, and you know, I've read some of those, but I no, I've read the books up to this point and the books are fine. Like they're fine. They're not amazing. They're fine. But there are parts of the show that the storytelling is so good. And it's sort of interesting to me that we came from, you know, let's make it into a movie, but it has to be accurate. It has to be faithful. And that now we're sort of exploring the options of, well, this works specifically for what it is. Does it have more to offer us, like, for entertainment value? in a movie or a TV show or a, a tabletop role-playing game or what, like, and what do we do to sort of allow it to grow into what it should be for that medium as opposed to what it is in this medium? I think that's a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had a teacher, uh, Mythgard is a thing I bring up all the time on Atherith, uh, is a uh, speculative fiction online university where you can get a master's degree and, Tolkien studies or speculative fiction. Sorry, what's the address? What's the, what's that? uh, It's uh, Signum University is the overall organization. Mythgard is the, uh, where it started. Um, Put this in the show notes. Yeah. Um, They're fucking cool. And I took a bunch of courses there before I became a father and my free time went up in flames. Uh, 
And Dr. Olson, who is the founder, uh, formerly known as the Tolkien professor, he taught a class uh, about The Hobbit, right when The Hobbit movies came out. And I swear I have a point. Um, and somebody asked him about the movies, the, Tol the Lord of the Rings movies and The Hobbit movie versus the source material. And they said, how do you feel about them as interpretations versus the source material, given that this is like your livelihood teaching classes about these things. And uh, he said a really fascinating thing. This, that is how I've, what, what I've always referenced since then. And he said, it's like King Arthur. For hundreds of years, people have taken this old, old, old story and reinterpreted it, not just for new times, but for new mediums. This is a thing that a lot of people don't always understand get about King Arthur is he was reinterpreted for poetry, for song, for uh, oral tradition, for some of the earliest written stories. And each time things were added, things were changed, things were complete. It, it was sometimes completely different and it grew and for the tastes of the new era. And you have to respect that each generation and each medium is different and has different demands. And so you can appreciate it, a book and a TV show and that each one has different demands and has different requirements. And those are different things. And he says, I can, I can appreciate that Tolkien, the book and Tolkien, the movies have different requirements and, yeah. and appreciate them as different things the same way that I can appreciate the different kinds of Arthur. And that's really stuck with me over the years. I think that, Looking back at adaptations from growing up, etc., um, I think that a lot of the obsession with like accurate adaptations was I'm remembering so many adaptations of things that just completely got it wrong. Like they didn't have even the notion of who the characters were or what the world was, etc. That it was like, theoretically, it was a show or a movie that was this, and it was just not. Hey, Aaron, wouldn't it be cool if somebody made a uh, The Dark is Rising movie? It would be cool if somebody made The Dark is Rising movie. Too bad that it's it never happened. It's a good happened. thing they never did. <laughs> That's at least where my, like, personal, you know, wanting things to be, like, accurate comes from. But by accurate, I don't necessarily mean like, you know, hitting things frame by frame, note for note, et cetera. It's the it's the like you have to capture the actual spirit of it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that that's a good way to put it, that like there's a difference between re-envisioning it or retelling something um, and and adapting something. Right. Like there's there's a difference there. It's interesting that this turned into like a literary theory podcast. Well, yes. that, that's definitely something that, that, that at least three people on this podcast uh, have some experience with. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the fair use doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. 
The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com. <laughs>